Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Julian Hayes II, back at it again, and Happy New Year. I hope, I hope the year is treating you well so far. And I have an awesome guest today, a fellow superhuman, and I call everyone that. And we are going to talk about biological aging, getting into depth with that, and a very cool test, assessment, whatever you want to call it, that is really a game changer. So we don't have to wait 40, 50 years to learn about what's really going on in our body. So I'm here with Ryan Smith. He is a biochemist, co-founder of True Diagnostic, as, which is a company that is focused on the methylation array-based diagnostics for life extension and preventative healthcare. If you're not totally familiar with some of the things I just said, don't worry, it will all make sense very shortly. So without further ado, Ryan, how's it going, man? Yeah, hey, Julian, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to talk and introduce some of your listeners to Biological Age. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm really excited to, um, to talk about this. This is something that I always mention to clients where we're talking about, you know, chron chronological age, you may be 35, but depending on your lifestyle and everything, you, you can kind of have a shock that you're really 55 on a cellular level. And then some people vice versa, they're like 26. So um, as we start this, Let's dive into some of your origin story a little bit. So growing up, would you have predicted that you are doing what you're doing right now? <laughs> Absolutely not. I think, <laughs> um, you know, uh, my background just from a, from an undergrad perspective is biochemistry. So I've always known that I'm really interested in, you know, you know, science uh, and, and different mechanisms, but for what it's worth, uh, you know, never really was interested in the aging process, even as, uh, you know, my, myself, I'm aging, my parents are aging. Um, and that, that has sort of changed, you know, I, after, after undergrad, I went to medical school, got really interested in medicine, loved the, the work, but got to the clinical portion and it just realized it wasn't for me. I think a, a lot of times it was treating people who were always and already sick. Um, and so decided to go a little bit of a different direction and creating a, a compounding pharmacy, which specialized in really innovative and unique molecules. And, and that's really, I was introduced to this world of preventative medicine. And, and that was exciting to me because you can start to impact these patients from before they get sick. And, 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 and that's always a lot easier. Any, any physician would tell you it's easier to uh, prevent damage than it is to fix it. Um, and so this idea of preventative medicine became really, really exciting to me. And so, uh, you know, didn't know I had a passion for that until I sort of stumbled upon this integrative functional medicine community. Um, and then once sort of being in there with a lot of the, the really cool and innovative products, a little really cool and innovative interventions, the one thing that I, I saw to be really important was the question of how do we measure the efficacy of these things. And so that began sort of my, uh, my second uh, career phase into uh, true diagnostic and sort of what we're doing now. So I'm curious, creating the compound pharmacy, um, what's, because in my head, because I did a, I left medical school after one year. And so that, that was enough for me. And so, so I'm, I had a lot of friends who are pharmacists and that's a very, regulated industry that has a lot of red tape, a lot of, I'm not going to say bad things. I'm not, I'm not going to bad talk it today. I'm going to be yeah. on my good behavior today. So entering something like that, what was some of the initial hurdles that you had to come through? Yeah. Cause I, I say that because I'm sure there's a few listeners out there who are maybe in the process of starting their business or want to, and they're entering an industry that's, is pretty traditional, but they're trying to maybe disrupt it a little bit. 
Yeah, definitely. And that, that's essentially what we try to do as well. Obviously, pharmacies and the pharmacy world is a massive space. Um, and we came in with really one idea, which is that we wanted to do these innovative products and, and, and make them available, things that we have been have a pretty good success and proven track record in, in helping patients. Uh, and But we're relatively, you know, uh, not well known between physicians or, or patients. And so sort of educating them on those opportunities and then providing the product was something we were really excited about. Um, and as you mentioned, by far the biggest hurdle in that was uh, you know, outside of educating um, and, and education to some of these physicians was the regulatory piece. Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of those regulatory pathways we were using have essentially closed. Uh, you know, compounding pharmacies are definitely, um, you know, under a, a very close eye of, and scrutiny of the, of the government uh, due to some things that have happened in the past, which have been unfortunate. And um, and, and so compounding pharmacies are going undergoing, a, I would say, a huge regulatory uh, uh, sort of change. But with that being said, I think that what we were able to do in that pharmacy was was really take that idea and, and bring it to fruition. We were able to, uh, you know, we were the fourth fastest growing company in healthcare. We just sort of hit a niche because these molecules were things that were really helping patients. Patients had great results. Physicians had great results. And, uh, and, and sort of, it's sort of spread by that success. And so, um, so, but those molecules, as I mentioned, were always in various stages of FDA approval. And so uh, as someone who, who definitely has a respect for, for well-validated science, uh, I think it was important to, to get more of that science and, and, for that, we were always looking at the biomarkers, uh, whether it be, you know, blood-based biomarkers or functional biomarkers. Um, and then this idea of epigenetic methylation clocks came out and, and it seemed like a really exciting thing for the same thing you mentioned earlier, which is that uh, these are ways to quantify the age of your body and, and sometimes even do really scientific science fiction type things like predicting death, right? Um, and, and so what these can do is, is sort of really accelerate some of the insights we're getting from these patients and data. And, uh, and that's what excited me about it. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So the process of even measuring biological age, you know, because so how did that even, how do you even like measure that? How does that even start? Like what's like, because a lot of times people can be skeptical of these things, right? Because you get these results about the, how do I know how accurate they are? Yeah, definitely. Good, good question. And, and, and one that has a multitude of answers, you know, the, this idea of biological age, I think it's first important to tell why it's important. Um, and, and most of the people will probably think of this intuitively, but um, you know, the, the the biggest risk factor for almost every chronic disease and death, we're talking metabolic disease, diabetes, stroke, heart attack, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, the number one risk factor for the majority of those diseases, any chronic disease is age. Um, and so we know that age plays a massive role in whether or not we're healthy. You know, there's a reason we don't see a lot of 30 year olds have strokes and heart attacks and, and some of those other things. And so, uh, so age has always been, I would say an emphasis in the healthcare community, but, uh, but there's always been a, a relatively big problem, which is the way that we quantify age, which is just generally our chronologic ages, is not always the most accurate, right? We know that that we probably all know people in their 70s who look like they're in their 50s and, and, and vice versa. And so that that way to quantify age, we we know it's important, but chronological age doesn't always tell us a lot. Um, and, and so we wanted a better way to do this. And, and this is not just something that we've been looking into, but people for for decades have, have been investigating. And, um, and so what is the standard is sort of the question of, of how we can 
see how old the body is or how well the body is aging. Um, and, and so there are some standards for that. You know, the American Federation of Aging Research has developed some standards. Um, but there are multiple ways that people have done this. Really, you know, I, I always mention some very, very crude measurements that, uh, you know, where people have been taking their, bio, their chronological age and adding one, you know, uh, year for every pack per day they smoked, right? Really, really uh, simple and, and not very accurate ways. And so uh, that's even been done with things like telomeres. It's been done with even blood-based measurements. Um, and, and so there are a lot of things you could judge that on. But but I think that really in 2013, there was a really big step forward where they are investigating some of the new biomarkers, uh, basically things that we're just now able to test at large scale. Um, and we know have major impacts on disease. And one of those was this idea of epigenetic methylation. Um, and what it was able to do is to really objectively standardize biological age, but its predictions were also very, very accurate. So it was able to better than most measurements of biological age, relate this to disease related processes. So that if we know someone is aging quicker by this measurement, or, or then we know that they're probably more at risk. If we know that people are aging slower by this measurement, we know that they're protected. Um, and, and so uh, this measurement looks to be probably the most accurate way to quantify biological age at the moment. Um, and that will always change. I think that, uh, you know, ideally, as this new world of medicine uh, involves things like artificial intelligence and computer learning, the more information we can feed these things, the better. However, as a standalone biomarker, the met epigenetic methylation is very, very effective in telling us how our aging process is going. So can you look at the, when you look at the genome here, right? Um, is there specific markers that are going to, um, can you do certain genome, do certain markers um, accelerate faster than others, depending yeah. on like the lifestyle that you're doing? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and okay. I think that okay. in order to, to really explain that, it might be better to go into just a, a general explanation of, of okay. what we're measuring, which is this methylation. And so mm -hmm. uh, most people are familiar with DNA tests, right? Like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Um, everyone's probably seen those. And what they are measuring are essentially your DNA sequence. So, uh, you know, what is what is happening in all over your body? If you got that DNA from a skin cell or a saliva sample, it's going to be the same DNA sequence. Um, however, epigenetics is a little different, right? You know, whenever we're we're sort of growing and proliferating from you know these uh, sperm and, and oocyte, what we're essentially doing is is changing the the way that our, our multiple cells behave, right? The the expression of the genes in our heart are very different than the expression of the genes from our skin. And the reason is they behave differently and we want them to behave differently. And so the way that we regulate that is by turning certain genes on or off um, in different types of tissues. Um, and so our hearts are expressing a lot different genes than our skin and, and for good reason. And so the way that they control that are by these little on or off switches. Um, usually that off switch is called DNA methylation where they sort of attach a little bit of a just sort of of a carbon group which prevents genes from being transcribed into RNA which would then initiate their you know the, the sort of a, a transcription process or their activation um, alternatively, you can also use a molecule, an acetyl molecule, to activate some of those genes. And so that sort of off and on switches are things that our bodies start from the moment the sperm meets the egg, and and uh, we continue it throughout our entire life. And and unfortunately, you know, really prior to you know the 2010s, we weren't able to really measure this at large scale or super effectively. But the data that is generated, the, the amount of places we can look at in every cell is around 29 million, and each cell is widely different. So you can imagine that's a lot of data. Um, and so what I oftentimes talk about whenever I talk about our company is we're really trying to create the Rosetta Stone, so to speak, of, of how to interpret that.
that data. That data is now finally available at a really large scale, and we're just trying to learn how to read it and interpret it. And, and some of the work that people have done way before our company was started have been able to turn these markers into information on aging. And the way that they do that is by taking a lot of data, um, you know, looking at 400, 500,000 spots in the, the genome, and then seeing what effectively changes in all these patients with age, right? If you look at a thousand, 2000 patients, you see some of these markers are tend to become very hypermethylated or hypomethylated as we age, which gives us a, a way to sort of create these predictive algorithms, which say by reading your data on how well or how much or how little this is methylated, we can give an idea of how old you are. Um, and, and so that was really exciting because it was very, very objective. And it immediately was already used in very exciting ways. It was used in you know crime scene investigations. It's used in forensics to tell how old someone is if they leave their DNA at a crime scene. And even with refugees to see if someone's an adult or a minor. And so it was almost immediately after it was created, it was so specific that it started to be used in really uh, specific use cases all around the world. And, and the idea then is how can we use this information to go after health? And, and right now, this is an absolute explosion in the biotech and health space where people are looking at how to read these methylation marks for every type of disease, every type of prediction, um, you know, er, er, maybe even things that are not necessarily diseases, things like, you know, physical functioning or, or uh, you know, mental uh, uh, processing speeds or IQ or, or a lot of those other things that, that are are affecting our daily lives. And so um, if there's one thing to, to really take away from, from this talk, it's that epigenetic methylation as a biomarker will be around for a long, long time. It's going to affect every single disease. Already there are tests on the market which can detect up to 50 types of cancers and tell you exactly where they are in your body. Um, and so this is a, a biomarker that is just now beginning. It's sort of where DNA was 30 years ago. Um, but, but our company particularly has specialized in um, in age-related diagnostics, because as I mentioned, age is the number one risk factor for all chronic disease and death. And if we can change that, we can change people's risk. And, and I always say the statistic, but I think it's worth mentioning is that if everyone in the world were to be seven years younger uh, biologically than they are chronologically, we'd be able to cut disease in half. And, and that is, that's pretty incredible, right? Uh, and, and definitely within everyone's grasp, if they can go ahead and measure themselves and then do the things required to reverse that aging process. Wow, that's a lot of money saved. That's a lot oh, of money. Uh, yeah, that's a lot because aging, you know, a lot of times people forget that aging not only is for a risk factor for all these chronic diseases, but it's also an economic disaster that, absolutely. As, a, as a byproduct of all the chronic diseases and illnesses that, that, that it comes with. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, especially with an aging population, which we, we certainly have, it becomes even more of an impact. And, and so the idea, you know, even if, if everyone in the world were just to change their aging rate by 20%, we could save just the U.S. Uh, alone $3 trillion in healthcare spending per year. I mean, that's a massive amount. And, and so uh, this makes a big difference, right? And, and, and so that's really what we're trying to get people to, to think about now is, is, is to approach age a little bit differently, not as something that is, um, you know, inevitable, uh, but, but something something that is a biological process, one that is directly linked to our ability uh, to function, to, to look the way we want, to feel the way we want, and then also for our ability to stay out of, of the hospital or, or stop being sick. And so we believe aging is a disease. I think there's a lot of movement going to that direction. And we're really being able to hopefully quantify it so we know exactly what treats it. So we can look at the interventions that we might recommend, or we can look at, at, at some of the things that have been well-validated to prevent those outcomes. And, and as you mentioned, it'll save a ton of money 
for, for everyone individually, as well as our, our society as a whole. But beyond that, it just makes people's lives better. And, you know, I think that uh, we, we can talk about this a little bit later as well, but it's not just about living longer. It's also just about living better. So you're not, um, you know, uh, having to choose between, you know, making these life decisions or being happy. It is both. Absolutely. And so as when we do this test and we get our results back, what's, is there like a, like a variance to say I'm, I'm 35 and the test comes back and it says I'm 29. Is yeah. there like a, a range give or take, or is that, or is, is that number the exact number? So, so that number is the exact number as measured by these algorithms, but these mm -hmm. algorithms are, are constantly being changed and changed and updated with new information or, or, or being trained to better ways. And so the algorithms themselves can be a little bit complicated sometimes. And, and that's why I always like to separate the things that we do into two different steps. One is the, the data generation where we're actually testing your DNA. And the other one is how we interpret that. Um, and, and so some algorithms are better than others, but, um, but generally the, the result that you would get from our test is, is relatively accurate. It will, it will tell you sort of where you're at and then um, and give you an idea of how your current status is affecting your risk of disease. Um, so we'll tell you, you know, if you're accelerated aging, how that might affect your risk of, of you know, things like cancer or things like cardiovascular disease or some of those other things. Um, and, uh, and again, it's linked objectively to all of those other things. So we can actually give you real metrics on how your relative risk is increased or decreased. And the one thing that I think we probably haven't emphasized as much is that that unlike your DNA, you can't change your DNA sequence, right? Unless you're doing some really, really high tech related things. But right. that being said, for epigenetics, this is something that your body regulates and you can actually change this, um, at least in certain locations. And so um, there are things you can do to actually reverse your aging process and things that have been published to show exactly that. And so um, so in addition to, to knowing and, and, and putting an emphasis on age, it's also important to put an emphasis on the things that, that hopefully improve that process. Yes. And so we'll come back to that because that's a, that's a very important point to make. But before that, um, I want to talk about some of the things that maybe accelerate aging that you've noticed. Now, um, you know, this show's filled with entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs as well. And we tend to be type A, highly stressed individuals, sometimes probably don't sleep as much as we should. I'm guilty of that one as well. And so Stress is not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing in the right dosages. But is stress the number one thing? If I had to guess, if I'm at the, if I'm at the casino and I, I'm going to place a bet on something, is stress the number one thing for accelerated aging? You know, I would say it's 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 highly up there. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, you know stress is perceived in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, some things like physical stress, right, like working out, are great for our bodies. But it's this consistent process of stress which does look to have a major impact in in how we age. You know, uh, one of the things I always like to point out about these algorithms, uh, in particular, the first ever algorithm created, the Horvath 2013 clock, 85 of the 353 loci that they used to calculate age are located near these glucocorticoid receptors, which are obviously expressed or changed by stress. And so we know that from even a, a functional perspective of these gene regulations, that they're highly tied to stress. But we also see that, that in larger meta-analyses that stress is increases aging. Um, and, and, you know, there are a lot of other things, I would say, in, in that um, sort of epidemiological um, knowledge base that we know affect aging. Things, as you mentioned, like, uh, you know, worse sleep quality. Uh, you know, smoking obviously has a really detrimental effect uh, as we would anticipate um, you know high levels of drinking um, you know the, the even uh, I would say you know physical activity is, is great but too much physical activity can be bad and so we know a lot about these things from an epidemiological perspective we know things that are positively or negatively associated
associated with aging. And one of the, you know, and I would say those are not necessarily too groundbreaking because most of the things that we know are things that you would probably intuitively think, right? <laughs> uh, stress is bad. Sleep is, is, or at least should say some sleep, uh, at least moderate and, and consistent amounts are great. Um, you know, not smoking, not drinking too much, not exercising too much and putting your body under too much of that physical stress. Um, and so a lot of those things are intuitive. We also know that, that the typical markers you'd like to avoid from general health, right? Like high levels of inflammation or, um, or, you know, for, for what it's worth, even high triglycerides or, or, uh, you know, low HDL, all of those things are things you would want to avoid because all of them also show effects on this epigenetic aging process. And so, um, so there are a lot of things that we know just generally, but there are a lot of other more interesting things that we're finding out. And I would say stress fits into that category where we're seeing people who, who practice, practice mindfulness or practice meditation or stress reduction strategies can make a difference in their epigenetic aging process. Hmm. What's been now you looked at tons of data by this point. Now, what's been some of the most interesting findings that you, that you, that has surprised you from all this data? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, one of the things that we find, uh, is that there's definitely a racial component. Um, you know, the, uh, there's things, for instance, called like the Latin paradox, where they might have better aging rates despite having more incidence of some of those other chronic diseases, right? Like uh, metabolic disease. Yeah. And so, so uh, that, that's been interesting. I think that some of those, those population level components uh, are sometimes surprising. Um, you know, in addition to that, I think that, um, you know, some of the effects that we've seen from medications that we were really, really hopeful for, um, you know, things like metformin haven't seemed to have as big of an impact as we might've thought. And so, uh, and I say all that with caveats because, you know, the data is always growing and generating. Um, but, but even I would say the sex-based differences, um, you know, what we see from, uh, you know, women tend to age a little bit better than men. And, and we see that in some cases, uh, some covariate, uh, things like high blood pressure, for instance, in women, um, can actually increase their epigenetic age a little bit more than high blood pressure in men. And so we're, we're starting to find, uh, you know, a lot of sex-based differences, a lot of, uh, population-based differences. And then we're, we're especially looking at how a lot of treatments affect these, these particular categories. And I think that's been surprising as well, because some of the things I would have placed, uh, you know, pretty big bets on as well have been things that, that don't pan out to be, uh, I would say as beneficial. And, and again, all of these things are growing. Um, I, and I, I would also mention that one of one of the most interesting things I, I think from a, from a societal level standpoint is that we have a really, really cool a algorithm that, and a lot of times we, we, I should mention that the the thing we output is an age, right? Where it tells you how old you are uh, versus, um, you know, your, your chronological age, but we output other things as well. We output things like telomere length, or uh, we output things like how many immune cells of each type you have. And one of the other things we, we um, also uh, read out is another aging metric, which tells you your instantaneous rate of aging. Um, um, and that one has been really, really exciting as well, because what we've started to see, and we've tracked uh, these individuals from since when they were three years old, now all the way to their age 45. And, and some of the things we found are that things like socioeconomic status and um, you know the amount of, of child uh, stress and polyvictimization can greatly increase these aging rates. And when these increase are in children, they can actually even predict outcomes at age 45. And so I think a lot of people oftentimes think of age as something you need to start thinking about in you know your, your 40s and 50s. And, and, uh, and, and that's not necessarily the case, even 
in early adult life, even actually before conception, we're seeing uh, epigenetic marks which affect each other's aging rate. Um, and so I think that as aging becomes more solidified and, and more recognized as a disease, we'll also start to sort of view how we view social dynamics and, and things like um, you know population level uh, uh, statistics in, in, in terms of fixing this aging process and treating a lot of those uh, individuals who might just be at higher risk for aging. Yeah, that's very interesting because um, I have a few, I know a few people who specialize now in preconception programs. Absolutely. Like, because you always hear, yes, you want to be healthy before con conceiving, but I didn't know the amount of detail and the just how pivotal that is in, until recently. So that's pretty cool. And then also the racial thing. And I, I think intuitively, we've always heard different racial groups have certain issues that pop up more, at least I know I have, like there's certain things that run in my family. And so I guess that's probably a genetic component as well. And then, and then the, the epigenetics kits, kicks in as well. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's sometimes hard to say because, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, racial identities are also very tied to, um, you know, uh, different social processes, right? The amount of support structure in a community or even the foods you're eating or behaviors that you're having. And so so it's sometimes hard to draw out what's genetic or what's social. But with that being said, we we are starting to learn a little bit more about that to really answer that question of nature versus nurture, right? To say, you know, this is the amount that is contributed from, you know, some of the baseline DNA or even the genetics passed down from us. Uh, uh, epigenetics, which is they passed down from us from future generations. A very cool paper actually came out this week, which showed that, um, you know, in, in the Rwanda genocide, they're actually even now generations later, still have epigenetic marks, which signal the stress of that event. Um, and, and we've seen the same with famine, uh, for instance, uh, you know, in, in different periods of the world where descendants of people who have undergone famine have different epigenetic marks and regulation. And so, so preconception, it is, is absolutely, I would say, uh, I would say a, a monumental area for, for family planning for, for some of these markers in health. Um, and we're, we're definitely investigating that as well. Uh, you know, without going too, uh, too off topic, we're, we're investigating something called the imprintome or, and this is basically, um, you know, most people are aware that from you get two pairs of DNA, one from your parents, uh, you know, one from each parent. Um, however, oftentimes, uh, you, some of the DNA you receive from one parent, at least epigenetically is deactivated, which puts all of the emphasis on your health onto the parent that actually gave you the, the activated version of those genes. Um, and, and as a result, if there are problems with that, they can be really penetrable, as we would call them, or they mean that it, you're basically going to see a, a phenotype uh, happen in the child. And so even that imprintome related work is interesting. I mean, there are papers published even just two months ago showing that, that uh, for instance, uh, marijuana can can increase the some of the markers which have been shown to be correlated with autism, for instance, um, and, and definitely in sperm. And so so this is definitely a growing area. But I, I think it just goes to show you once again that, that epigenetics generally is a, is a marker which will, will be used a lot in the future in a lot of different ways. Um, but as it affects the aging process, it goes to show you that although you can change these methylation marks, you still have to know where you're starting from because uh, you're, you're receiving these things from your parents and, and grandparents. And so you want to get an idea of where you're starting. And then no matter where you're starting, we don't want you to be scared of this marker. If you're, if you're aging five, six years faster, that's okay. You just now know that that's your goal to get that lower. Um, and, and so we never want anyone to be scared by these metrics. We want them to use it as a baseline. And for everyone, no matter if you're 15 years younger, we still want you to compete with yourself to get that as low as possible, because the lower you get it, the less at risk you are for every chronic disease. Yeah, I'd rather know something now than yeah. have it become a big, it's like having a little crack in a dam right now. 
and that yep. you can that you can still do something about than waiting years later and it and it's just gonna just burst apart and too much damage has been done then so i i really like that point there because a lot of times i think even I've had people that have been nervous just to go get lab work because they don't want to see it in case it's quote unquote bad, yeah. but I mean, you can fix it. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. You can, you can work on it, but you got to know what you're shooting at. <laughs> it, exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, the thing I always say as well as it relates to, to sort of that, that knowledge is that, uh, as I mentioned before, it's easier to fix things before they go bad rather than to fix it once they're bad. Um, but beyond that, everyone has a context for age, right? And, and so I think oftentimes people are a little bit more scared of this metric than they might be for things like their C-reactive protein or their triglycerides where they don't necessarily know the reference range. And so here everyone knows how old they should be. And, and that might cause a little bit of fear, but this should not be uh, a metric which you fear it should be one that that you again want to try and drive as low as possible it's, you you want to keep seeing uh, benefit and in a way that you can actually track that too right and so in a way that not just preventing your risk for one disease uh you know but preventing risk for all of them yeah i would be nervous I, if anything i think people should be nervous maybe of the what is it the horvat's clock right that's the one that tells you about like predicting about your death right yeah, so that that, yeah. that, uh, that particular <laughs> clock is called Grimage, and, and Grimage, uh, yeah, yeah, and and it has uh, it absolutely can predict uh, when you might want to die, which you know uh, from an individual perspective may or may not be a good thing. It's one of those things that we have not uh, uh, gone after commercializing because uh, <laughs> you know some of the ethical implications, I would say there. But but beyond that, you know, it, it is still one of the algorithms is most highly correlated to health outcomes, and so uh, you know that's not the only output of that algorithm. It also uh, you know references an age, and so. Um, so, but it goes to show you again, some of the power and, and from a researcher perspective, what that allows us to do is look at how some of those, you know, new molecules, even some of those new fitness or diet or lifestyle interventions are affecting, you know, things 50 or 60 years from now. And so it allows us to really accelerate what we might be able to know about the outcomes of these studies by really getting a good idea on trajectory. Um, and, and so it's a great clinical research tool. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully the information that we can gather from that will lead everyone to have more tools for once they take their test to reverse that process. So, so we get the, so we get the test back and you mentioned instantaneous rate of aging, and then we have our actual age that we are. And so instantaneous rate of aging, that's how much we're aging. And so you could be aging, right? Yeah, so so really the the outcome is a, a number between really right around 0.6 to around 1.4, and that is how many biological years per year are you aging? So it's sort of like a speedometer uh, of of how fast you're aging at this moment. And sometimes, uh, you know, for instance, if people have had you know you, you know some some unhealthy histories, right, where they might not have been taking care of themselves. Uh, we can see people have really high biological ages, but if they've changed some of those processes, we might still see high biological ages, but really good rates of aging as they're starting to turn around this process. Um, and, and so I think that that dichotomy of the overall picture versus your current trajectory is really helpful in determining what's working and what's not, right? Um, you know, some people might implement a certain type of, uh, of nutritional protocol, uh, maybe keto or Mediterranean diet or, or the carnivore diet and see how that works for them to say, hey, is my aging rate increasing or decreasing? And it gives us a little bit more instantaneous feedback on what works for us. How often would you recommend people um, kind of retest and reassess? 
Yeah. So, so this is a, it's a good question. One that un, unfortunately consistently changes um, because of the sensitivity and precision of these algorithms. Um, and so generally some algorithms now I would say are, are conducive to more frequent testing, but, but we almost would always recommend no more than twice per year. If you're doing it once more than every six months, it might not be specific or sensitive enough to really pick up that aging signal. And it might just pick, be picking up noise that happens you know, throughout the, 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 the process of the actual lab process. And so six months is generally the, the most frequent we would recommend it. But uh, in the future, I think that some of those algorithms will be improved to do it every eight weeks or 12 weeks. Okay. Yeah. And just another question is, um, so I forgot, I think I read a paper where I talked to someone and, and they're really into this field and they contracted COVID mm-hmm. and then they tested the telomeres and their telomeres decreased. So if your telomeres are to increase naturally, then that would have an effect on your aging. So have you... What have you noticed in that area with COVID and aging? So a lot. So actually, we just recently published a article with Cornell and Yale, where we looked at some of those longitudinal changes um, in epigenetics methylation from baseline uh, to when someone developed COVID and then shortly thereafter. Um, and, uh, and and one of the things we found is that um, generally, like you mentioned, telomere length has been proven now several times in several different studies shortens after uh, an exposure to, to, to COVID-19. And so we actually found the same thing. We saw that there were significant telomere length shortening in, in a variety of individuals. And, and for anyone who's not familiar with telomeres, they are another marker which has been used to, to sort of functionally uh, gauge this aging process because as we get older our telomeres are sort of these end caps of our dna get shorter and shorter and shorter and so they definitely play a role in aging they're actually one of those nine hallmarks of aging Um, however in in a recent study they looked at sort of the um, in, in twins who have the, exactly the same genetic information, uh, they try to then look at the phenotypic differences. So the aging differences between those same twins. And, and what they generally found is that right around 2% of that variance has been attributed to things like telomere length shortening. So that's a relatively small amount, while right around 25% of that variance has been um, essentially attributed to these epigenetic uh, dysregulation. And so, so telomeres are an important process of aging, but probably separate and a little bit maybe less influential than some of these epigenetic markers. Um, but with that being said, we also looked at these epigenetic age clocks in, in COVID in that same study. And what we found there was also really, really interesting. And that is we found, um, you know, most people would expect to see an aging increase with COVID as we're seeing, you know, telomere shorten. Um, and we did find that, but really we only found that for people who are over 50 years of age. Um, actually for people under 50 years of age, we actually saw an aging decrease. Um, and, uh, and, and that is interesting. And, and maybe some of the thought processes behind that, if we had to speculate would be that younger people can mount a better immune response, a better hormetic response, which actually, uh, you know, shows some improvement and improves their ages, while those people who are over 50 are unable to mount that same response from an immune perspective, leading them to, you know, higher levels of inflammation, higher insults, which they're unable to recover from, which increases that aging process. And so that was, a, I would say, a really interesting study, because we didn't expect to see that line in the sand, right, where you would have differential exp- uh, responses according to your chronological age. Um, and, and so, uh, so it was really, really interesting. And I think overall, most people would tell you that the COVID is, is not a good thing for aging. And, and I think that, that that would probably be something we back up. Um, and then in addition to that, we also looked at those mRNA based vaccines, uh, to look at how, uh, those vaccines are changing before and after as well. And, and, and got a really interesting result there with most people taking the vaccine, showing an anti-aging effect as well. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess in the future, our MRNA mRNA vaccine, mRNA technology is going to be a huge thing 
you know, especially if we're, if we're going to cross the, na- the natural typical barrier when it comes to aging, right? Like if you're going to live 120 plus years, you're going to really have to rely on that kind of technology. Yeah, you know, we're, we're still uncertain if it's the mRNA based, uh, you know, okay. vector technology, or if it's just a vaccine in general. Okay. And so that's one of the questions we want to answer is how does, you know, things like the, the traditional flu or influenza vaccine actually affect aging, but, but I would absolutely agree with you. Some of those, uh, you know, new strategies, I would say on on reprogramming cells, or um, to reduce burden of senolytic cells, a lot of these delivery and identification methods are going to be vastly important. And so I think that uh, as we continue to develop these data sets, they'll just tell us more and more and more about what's working and what's not. Yeah. So this is a more specific question. So, you know, so say someone gets the report back and because things like peptides, right? Peptides. So when you get your report back and you see your aging and everything, and how is that, is that broken down enough to where you're going to have an idea of specific interventions that, that will maybe be ideal to help you um, improve that? Definitely. And, and, and so uh, uh, we break this a biological aging process down into an intrinsic age and an extrinsic age. And those can be relatively uh, complicated to explain. But generally, one is that baseline fundamental process of aging. The other one is more of an immune system aging perspective. And, and both are important because they each have different risk. But most importantly, they each have different treatments, which have been published to reverse those processes. And so the first thing we would generally try and do is say, you know, out of, out of things like intrinsic aging, extrinsic aging, the rate of aging and telomere length, what looks to be the most alarming? What is providing you the highest risk as an individual? And then we'd probably focus on going over the things which have been published in the clinical literature that have shown to reverse or change those baseline risk factors. Um, and, and so we do give a little bit of recommendation, and but but generally we also require that people go through a lot of this analysis with you know sort of health coaches or providers or people who have a little bit more knowledge of this on a day to day basis and a little bit knowledge of the trends because um, you know the, these things have been validated really extensively at population level scales, but are just now being applied to an individual. And I think that having someone who had some of that experience to go through with you can really make even better recommendations on how to reverse that process. Um, and, you know, we, we definitely also, I think uh, people might be going through this and saying, you know, is, is age the thing that causes the disease or do those diseases cause aging? And I think the answer is both. Um, you know, they're, they're, we know, as I mentioned, that some of those disease processes, which are unhealthy, might contribute to faster aging. And we also know that faster aging without any disease processes actually encourage the development of those diseases. And so, so aging is, is important either way. And, and, and for those people who have, I would say, some type of comorbidity, uh, some type of diagnosed disease, it's definitely important that you treat that first. But then after that, uh, the idea would be, how can you optimize all the other areas of your life? Yeah. So I know that I probably know the answer to this next question, but anytime that at least that I'm sure you're familiar with it. Anytime you're associated with anything longevity, anti-aging related, people are going to ask you, what are some of the key things I can do to reverse the aging process? Yeah, you, you know, it's uh, and, and I would say that a lot of work needs to be done in this in the field, just generally, mm-hmm. um, there, there are, uh, you know, a, a million studies out there about how things reverse the aging process. And as it relates to the epigenetics, there actually are not that many, the first ever interventional trial showing a baseline measurement 
um, and then a treatment and then an outcome only happened in in the, the fall of 2019. And so uh, that was right before the pandemic where a lot of research stopped. And so right now there are about eight or nine different interventional trials which, which, which do that same idea. And some of the things that have shown positive effects are combinations of things like metformin, growth hormone, and DHEA. Um, uh, you know, that, that was sort of the first ever trial that was published called the TRIM trial um, out of UCLA. Uh, you know, in addition to that, we've seen things like vitamin D supplementation having really robust, uh, you know, anti-aging effects in, in overweight individuals. Um, we've seen, uh, for instance, in some of our own trials, um, that things like uh, senolytics, like dasatinib and quercetin, or, or things that kill senolytic cells, or those sort of zombie cells, as people call them, that secrete inflammation, things that get rid of those unnecessary cells, um, tend to have an anti-aging effect. Um, you know, we've seen that, uh, you know, some, some diet nutrition things, Mediterranean diets are always really, really great. Um, whenever we look at them for, for these biological aging processes. And so, uh, and then, then a lot of those other epidemiological things we mentioned, right. Stress reduction, doing some activity, but not too much, maybe even drinking some beer or wine, but not too much. Right. Um, you know, there, there seems to be, I would say some of those, uh, uh, you know, curves where we see some, act, some of some things being good, but too much of a, a, the same thing being bad. And so I, I think moderate in a lot of areas of life, but definitely stress reduction, definitely some supplementation uh, with, uh, you know, a couple nutritional factors. And then, then we're starting to learn a little bit more about medications as well and senolytics as well as plasma exchange and, and stem cells all look to be relatively promising areas that can have, you know, relatively big changes in these age measurements. Yeah, I think I, I saw a recent report. I think it was Rejuven. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I appreciate, yeah, you bringing that up. So the rejuven is a, is a ingredient which includes uh, calcium alpha ketoglutarate. And, and, and this has been a molecule that has been studied a lot for aging. It's one of those ingredients in the Krebs cycle, which, which um, hopefully everyone remembers from your, you know, your <laughs> biology. But, um, but, but with that being said, I think that, uh, so alpha ketoglutarate is, is, they showed in that study what they call to be a six or seven year age reduction. Um, the only problem with that is that the, the measurement that they use, that algorithm, they use to show that change has not been published or validated. And so um, it, that presents a relatively big problem because we can't always compare apples to apples, right? If we, you know, created, uh, you know, our own clock that basically said, you know, if we change this one spot, we would see 100%, you know, 100 year age reduction, uh, we could probably do that. Um, but the, the answer would be, does it actually correlate to changes in the health outcomes? And without published studies, it's really hard to say that. And so, so for anyone who's interested in this topic, uh, topic of epigenetic methylation, there are a couple things that I would say, uh, I, I would highly encourage you to do before you get this testing. One is to validate the collection method. Um, right now, the algorithms that have been published are almost always published as blood-based algorithms, meaning that if you're taking a sample from your urine or your skin, or your saliva, it's probably not based on an algorithm which has been validated in the literature. Um, the, the second thing I always recommend is that the algorithm that, that the companies are using, make sure you ask if it's been published. Um, and, and because uh, you will want to see how your age relates to your increased risk or decreased risk of disease. And the way that that is done is by using these really large scale cohorts uh, by things like the Framington Heart Study, et cetera, and looking at how this change in algorithm uh, you know, affects some of those those health related outcomes. Um, and, and so those are, are two very, very important things. And then the last thing I would mention for anyone doing this testing is that the scale of the testing matters. Um, you know, we, we're measuring for every test right around 900,000 
locations um, in, in the blood. So we're looking at 900,000 genes um, in, in their, their expression. Um, and some, I would say the next nearest commercial company will use right around 100, 115,000, some doing as little as 1,500. Um, and so the reason that that's important is, as I mentioned, these things are, are on a daily basis, we're seeing improvements in algorithms, we're seeing new features of these interpretations. And so um, you want an algorithm that can also then grow with you as well, right? So that the information you get isn't immediately outdated, uh, you know, over the next, uh, you know, two weeks, uh, so to speak. And so something that can be continually updated is also important. And, and, and for that reason, we use the same testing mechanism that almost any clinical research trial would use as well. And so, so for anyone that's evaluating this, those are three really important things. Make sure it's blood, make sure the algorithm has been published, and make sure you're getting a, a relatively robust measurement because that is going to be able to be updated. Absolutely. That's very important because the thing, a knock against this field at times is that it's, it's quack or it's, it's not, there's no science to prove it or anything like that, because every day it seems like there's news tests popping up and people, you know, people are, are curious in it, but how do you know what's legit and what's not? So I think really laying those three points out there was very critical and, and very important right there. Yeah, definitely. And, and to mention that even further, as I think we talked about a little bit earlier, there are multiple ways that people also calculate biological age. But I would think that, you know, if you there are multiple now review studies since 2017, which which generally go on on statement to say that of all of the measurements thus far, it looks like epigenetic methylation based age is by far the most promising. And so so I think that if you're considering measuring your age, um, I think that that methylation presents the best route. And if you're doing methylation specific analysis, those are the three questions to ask. Yeah. And so if, if listeners are going to order a kit there, um, I saw there's two options and there's, there's one, like the complete collection. What's, yeah. what's the difference? So the, the difference is the amount of algorithms we're able to actually run on that data. Um, so there, this research, as I, I've said now multiple times, it has happening everywhere all at the same time, right? There are a lot of people interested in epigenetic methylation and a lot of people interested in epigenetic methylation-based aging. And so um, sometimes what, what happens is that we will have to license a particular algorithm from a university. Our rate of aging algorithm is a really good example. Uh, that work has been done since 1975, way, way before we were even you know, thinking about aging or in my case, even alive. Um, and, and so these data sets have been generated for a long, long time. And, and, and so uh, in order to get the access to some of those data, we have to essentially license that from Duke. And so uh, Duke and Columbia are, are the two universities now who sort of represent the continual work on that algorithm. And we're the commercial sort of side of that where we can then, you know, offer that to, to consumers. Um, and, and every time we do that, there's some monetary fees involved. So if we add new algorithms, sometimes we might have to charge a little bit more, but generally we can run all those algorithms on your data. So the, the complete collection just basically says we're running everything we can on your data and providing you all those results. Yeah, and this is it's more precision, pretty much. Like the more the more data, the more different algorithms, the more tests, the more precise everything's going to be. It's and is that pretty much the general thing? Absolutely, it gives you a much much better picture of your health, right? It, and and that's really what we want is is uh, to compare all of these things and see if we can find any patterns, right? And in in the future, we absolutely will. We'll be finding patterns. That, you know, right now we can, in addition to predicting death, we can predict you know probably how well you've been eating over the past few weeks. Uh, we can predict how much you've smoked across an entire lifetime, how much you're smoking now, how much you you're drinking currently. Is it mild, moderate, or heavy? We can tell you if you've been exposed to heavy metals or or different types of environmental 
environmental to- uh, plastics or other toxic agents. So, so the amount of information we're actually being able to generate from this data is growing at a ridiculous scale. Um, you know, whenever we first came out of, with our reports in, in July of, of 2020, we only had one report, um, and that was to tell you your biological age. Now we have over 15 different reports for wow. things such as, uh, you know, how likely are you are, are you to respond to uh, weight loss, or, or sorry, how likely are you to respond to caloric restriction for weight loss? Are you, are you, if you reduce your calorie intake, are you really likely to lose weight or are you not going to lose very much weight, right? There, there are a lot of papers on a daily basis that are coming out in a variety of different disease states. We can tell you how, how likely you are to lose your hair or how likely you are to, uh, um, you know, to, to, to lose muscle mass as you get older. A lot of these things are, are being built out. And as we continue to add them, we'll hopefully continue to provide that reporting back to you all. Yeah, I often say it's, it's it's it feels nearly impossible to keep up with everything going on in in this field. So at this point, I I just I try to meet as many people as possible in this field, and then I just rely on them because it's it's so hard. Because there's like you said, there's new things coming out literally every single day. Yeah. It is, and it and it is. It's definitely overwhelming, especially in the aging space, which is, I think, uh, you know, can be overwhelming at times. But ultimately, it's a great thing because it, it's changing the way that we think about aging. No longer as something that's inevitable, but something we can actually control and change. And 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 I, I think that um, you know, it, it, massive air levels of investment from the private sector are going in. Even the the NIH, uh, you know, or the, the National Institute of Aging, right, are, are are funding projects which will greatly change the way that we live our lives and how long we live. I think that. You you know, most people are probably familiar with that for over the past couple of years, for the first time in history, our average life expectancy has been going back down. And, and that is not the type of uh, trajectory we want to encourage. Right. Um, and, and so uh, these are these are some of the baseline measurements and metrics which are building that that larger approach. And, and as this data you know, continues to grow, we'll know a lot more and we'll know a lot more definitively. And so as we get ready to wrap this up and what's maybe one or two things that that's on the horizon this year that that you're really looking forward to. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. I, I would say, uh, you know, I, I talked a, at least a little bit about senescence earlier. Um, and, and senescence is, is uh, you know, again, one of those hallmarks of aging where uh, there's some dysfunction, which leads to inflammation in your body, which leads to that process of, of inflammaging. Um, and, and, and currently, there are not really great ways to quantify that process. Uh, you know, generally, it, it can be nonspecific and sometimes very expensive to do. Uh, we hope to create a sort of a, a lower price point metric to tell you if you might have higher or lower levels of senescent cells than, than other individuals, which then might see if you're a good candidate for some pharmacological intervention or even some supplemental nutrition like Fizetin, for instance, which has been shown to reverse uh, some of those cells. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, and uh, we are also coming out with uh, a, a very, very exciting um, death predictor clock and age predictor clock, uh, hopefully in the summer of this year, which we'll, um, we're doing in combination with Harvard, which will be um, a, a massive and really, really exciting data set. So those are the two things that, that uh, this year I'm really excited to get done. Awesome. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to, can't wait to check those things out. And, um, but um, other than that, man, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm sure listeners have gathered a lot from this. And where can listeners keep up with you? And, or where would you like for them to go and to order yeah. the test and everything? 
Well, so you can always go to truediagnostic.com and that's T-R-U diagnostic.com. Um, uh, and, and, and there you can find some things on our blog where we talk about some of these, new, the, the newest uh, uh, developments in, in the aging field and particularly in the methylation specific field. Um, and you can sign up for our newsletter, which will also provide you more information. Or if you even wanna, want to uh, to purchase a test, you can go on there and do that as well. Um, and, and again, uh, as this continues to grow, we'll, we'll hopefully be back on to talk about more updates, but um, Absolutely. I hope that, that people will invest in this idea of aging as a disease and, and do their best to try and prevent their own aging process. Absolutely. Cause I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear about this adescence because that that's a growing field that's, that's just has very little um, information on it right now. So that, I think that's a big thing. Yeah, definitely excited to, to do that on a follow-up call as well. As we know, uh, we're starting to learn some really exciting things in that category. So without further ado, listeners stay awesome, be limitless. And as always go be superhuman. Peace. <music> 